Hey everybody, Stephen here. We're taking a summer break this week from talking, but you don't have to take a break from listening because we're featuring a couple of our favorite interviews from The Energy Gang and The Interchange. First up is an Energy Gang segment with Ashley Vance, who's a Bloomberg reporter and the author of the 2015 book called Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the Quest for a Fantastic Future. Firstly, if you haven't read that book, go read it. It really helped me understand Musk fully as a person and as a mission-driven CEO. And even though so much has happened in the last two years since that book was published, it is still just as relevant. In the second half, we're going to dig into the interchange vaults and serve up a conversation between me and Shale Khan about what the grid may look like in 2030. It's like a geeky grid fan fiction. This is back when the interchange was behind the paywall, so I'm sure most of you haven't heard it. And you've also got to read Shale's accompanying piece, which you'll find right there in the show notes, as always. Before I roll the tape, a big thank you to Mission Solar. Uh, This podcast is brought to you, of course, by Mission Solar Energy, which is a solar module manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. Mission Solar operates a 260-megawatt facility right here in America. Through state-of-the-art engineering and outstanding quality, Mission Solar's modules, every single one of which is made in their Texas facility, offer world-class performance and guaranteed long-term reliability. Visit Mission Solar at the upcoming Solar Power International Conference at booth 3975. You can find out more about Mission's high-powered modules at missionsolar.com. And one last impassioned plea, spread the word about this show. I don't care where you do it, whether it's reviewing us on iTunes or posting about us on social media, it makes a huge difference for both the Energy Gang and the Interchange. We're humbled and motivated by your support. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And speaking of motivation, let's hear from Ashley Vance now about his book on Elon Musk. In this 2015 interview, we cover the span of Musk's career. My big takeaway from the book and this interview Whatever you think about Musk, he's putting us all to shame when it comes to maximizing his time. And it made me think differently about how I put my time to use. And that's what Ashley Vance expresses in this interview as well. So we started the conversation off by talking about how he got access to Musk in the first place. It was pretty tricky. (laughs) You know, I had done a cover story on him for Business Week in 2012. And uh, I mean, we had a pretty good rapport coming out of that. And after I saw the Tesla factory and the SpaceX factory in particular and and interviewed Elon, I, I realized that was kind of the book I wanted to do. And, and so I tried to feel him out on that idea pretty early on. And um, his biggest reaction was that, you know, he was going to write his own book, <laughs> which I thought was, was uh, pretty ambitious given how much stuff he already had on his plate. And, and I thought that, you know, if I pushed forward and just kept going that I might um, kind of break his will and get him to cooperate. But ultimately, it took about 18 months to do that. And so there were some, uh, there was plenty of moments along that way where I thought, you know, I just might never get him and I was going to have to kind of figure out another way to, to go about doing the book. There's this paradox here. And Elon, like, simultaneously doesn't give a shit about what other people think of his vision and then obsesses over it when it comes to mes- messaging. How often did you see those two sides of his personality clash? All the time. I mean, that's a good way to describe it. He's a really funny character because, completely like you said, this is a guy who 
he knows his his life's mission. He kind of decided on this, really um, coming out of his making his PayPal fortune, and and has been charging after it ever since. And when he says things like he wants to make a colony on Mars with you know not just a handful of people, but thousands or millions of people, I mean, he's dead serious about these things. And if you kind of try to tell him that he's wrong. Um, he really he doesn't care what you think he's going to go and try and do this anyway but he's also he really does care about the way the public perceives him and you see this on twitter all the time i mean he um he responds in sort of a very personal he takes he takes criticisms very personally and and responds to these things on twitter and and i got some of that when the book came out um on the whole, you know, he emailed me privately telling me he thought it was it was accurate and, and pretty well done. He gave me a 95% accuracy <laughs> rating, which, uh, you know, for Elon is pretty high. Um, but then when some of the press really picked up on this idea of what a hard boss he is and pulled out some of the anecdotes from the story, I got some of the um, the, the ferocity of, of Elon on Twitter and, and in some media stories as well. Since we have limited time here, I think, and we're talking to a largely a business audience, I, I want to discuss how Musk builds and runs his companies. And one of the things that becomes clear is that Musk isn't building electric cars or rockets or solar because it's a business opportunity he stumbled upon. Like these are three things that have been part of this grand vision since he was a pretty young guy. And, and a lot of people think that that's what makes him such a visionary, but it also makes him super obsessive really demanding, some would say, some would argue abusive to his employees. How does having this grand plan influence what he demands from the products his companies put out and then his employees? Well, I think it shapes the companies in a really major way. If you're talking about SpaceX, yes, they build cheap rockets and and are trying to disrupt the aerospace industry, but it is that grander mission, this idea of, of getting to Mars. And um, even more than that, you, you know, the, the foundation of SpaceX came from Elon going to this NASA website many years ago and seeing that they just had nothing about exploring Mars anymore and, and getting really depressed about that. So he took this as kind of... Um, mankind had lost the sense of manifest destiny and exploration and things like that. And so that's really the mission that is is fueling SpaceX, not just for Elon, but for so many of the employees. Gwyn Shotwell is the president of SpaceX, and she runs the day-to-day operations of the company. And when you talk to her, she's just as passionate about getting to Mars as he is. And, and Tesla is the same thing. Yes, they want to make a cool car. They want to have all the latest software and sort of push the industry there. But it's it's really this religion around electric vehicles. And again, it's the same thing. J.B. Straubel, who's the chief technology officer there, he was pining after electric cars before he even met Elon. And, and he stayed. And what you see with both J.B. and Gwyn and many of the employees is they put up with a lot of, there's a lot of pros that come with working with Elon and a lot of cons and they put up with the cons because they are as big of believers in these ideas as he is. And so, you know, I mean, what I found time and again was that um, I think he's able to get more out of his employees really than just about any other CEO I've ever run across because of this, the, these huge missions that the companies are after. And it was really funny. I mean, some of the, I talked to a lot of people who had been fired by Elon and they would say, negative things about him, but almost every single one of these people at the end still had this begrudging respect for him and the mission that he was after. Well, it seems like here's a guy with this incredible vision 
who also knows how to write the code. I mean, there's it's this amazing ability to do both things and this voracious appetite to know more about how things work. And so I would think it would be hard if you're an employee, you have to know everything, or at least you have to know the solution to everything, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the expectations are very high. <laughs> and uh, I mean, there, there's a couple of cases in the book where people come to them and, and it, the worst place to be is on this kind of critical path, which is the one thing they've determined at either SpaceX or Tesla at any given time that's kind of blocking the company from getting where it wants to go. And that's usually where Elon puts his attention and you are expected, this, this might be a seemingly impossible thing, but you're expected to know how to solve it or at least figure out a way. And Elon is sitting over your shoulder, uh, monitoring your every move until you fix this problem and and the obviously not everyone can always live up to this but i did find especially in the case of spacex the the employees were they're so capable in this this atmosphere it's high pressure but it really did especially in the early days of the company pull an incredible amount of work and really high class work out of these people it's it's um it's very interesting to sort of hear what they went through so Ashley, I think I have a a couple of questions for you. I, you know, I think first of all, great book. I really thought that I got to learn more about Elon as the man. Um, the part where I thought it was slightly lacking was um, understanding Musk's uh, technical choices. Right? I mean, we're really heralding him up as somebody who really knows the difference between. A, B, or C on the pathway to reaching his goal, whether it's getting to Mars or whether it's getting to a sellable electric car. I think um, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out whether you got any insights as to whether he really made the right choices, whether it was Panasonic around the Gigafactory or whether it was around you know the different technologies he, cho- he chose around SpaceX and some of his competitors using other technologies. The same thing is true within Tesla, where you know, I think that Consumer Reports gave him a pretty damning score on his ability to make the right technical choices around serviceability of cars. Um, you know, like, where do you grade him on that? Well, uh, there's, you know, there's a huge degree of learning on the job for him. I mean, this is a guy who came from the software world doing software startups and ends up having to get into really complex manufacturing. And I think early on, he even says so in the book, he... I think he thought it was probably going to be easier than than he thought to to do some of this stuff. Like when SpaceX starts out, they essentially want to be kind of the southwest of space and really just an assembler of parts made by other companies. And then as he he gets into the business, he figures out that the only way he's really going to reduce costs is if they start making a lot of things in-house. And so that means he's got to learn how to make a rocket end-to-end from scratch. And and he had no experience. This is he, he learned aerospace by reading textbooks by poolside at the the hard rock hotel in las vegas and um so a lot of it was learning on the job when i talked to some of the best engineers at both companies the feedback i often got was um his track record's probably about 50 50 or maybe a little higher on some of the key technology decisions but that he sticks with them and and so for better or worse you see something like in the case of the Model S with the the door um, handles that go flush with the car. That's a, an instance where Elon was very insistent on having this thing. This was a design choice. The engineers early on told him this was a really horrible idea. We've solved door handles many, many years ago. Why complicate this thing on an already complex car? And you see now 
in that consumer reports it's an issue that's ongoing we still have problems with these things on the other hand it's one of the most striking features of the car as one of the engineers said if it's a gimmick it's a gimmick that's worked it's sold a ton of cars and so i you know i think on the whole i mean Given that he was new to so much of this stuff, I think his track record speaks really well for his decision making. But but he is 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 still a work in progress on this stuff. Right, but you can't really give him an award for you know reading a lot of textbooks, right? I mean, he either moves us from government based space exploration to um, private sector space exploration, which Jeff Bezos is trying to do, and Richard Branson's trying to do, and others are trying to do. Or he's trying to move us from gasoline-powered vehicles to electric vehicles, which BMW and Audi and others are trying to do as well. Or he's trying to bring us from coal power to solar power through Solar City, which, of course, Sunrun and lots of other folks are trying to do. I mean, like he either like is actually making the decisions to put himself into a place where he's solving these problems, or he's sort of like you know bringing his considerable star power, which I think is extraordinary, and getting people to notice for the first time, which is cool, but it doesn't, that doesn't in and itself solve the problem, right? I guess. I mean, the, uh, I'm certainly not here to like sort of defend Elon or anything. He can speak for himself and, and I'm not an Elon fanboy, but the, uh, the, I mean, if you bringing up Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson, for example, I mean, look at what Elon's done, com- moving the aerospace industry forward compared to what they've done. The SpaceX went from being a complete joke in the aerospace industry to now Arian Spas, the Chinese, the Russians have all had to come up with responses, both lowering their cost structure dramatically and coming up with reusable rocket plans that had been shelved for many years. And so um, I think it would be grossly unfair to to undercut anything that he's done there. And the same thing with electric cars. I mean, I doubt any of the major car makers would be having serious electric car plans at this point unless Tesla had been a success. Um, so, you know, I think if he still has a ton to prove, I mean, we have to see the reusable rockets. We have to see a mainstream electric car. Otherwise, some of this is a bit gimmicky in some ways. Um, but if nothing else, he's he's already pushed these industries forward that had really grown staid and complacent and, and uninspiring. And so I give him credit for that. When you were reporting this, how did you separate the hype and the gimmick from the reality of what he's doing? Because Elon is so well known for setting these ridiculous goals publicly, saying they're going to achieve an incredible cost reduction or some performance target. And they're usually, they they very often, his companies very often achieve those goals, but years after Elon claims they would have. Um, describe why he may, sets those targets. And, and um, you know, how can we separate that hype from reality? Like, are you pretty skeptical when he sets certain targets publicly? Pretty skeptical, yes. <laughs> there is what I like to refer to as Elon time, which is is different to everybody else's time. He, you know, I mean, he talks about this in the book, which I was kind of surprised that he actually addressed it and kind of copped to uh, to being wildly off on on some of his predictions. SpaceX, their very first press release is pretty comical. They start around two thousand one, and and their first re- release says that within eighteen months they're going to build a rocket from scratch and launch it, and ultimately it takes about seven or eight years for them to actually pull that off. And Elon says, you know, he, he's usually about 200% off on timing and he's trying to get down to uh, 20% off. I've never fully 
understood why he does this to himself because the press it just creates this this horrible problem for investors and the press that he constantly has to address i think in his head he is is optimistic by nature and that he kind of pictures that there are thousands of little elons in his company that are going to execute flawlessly on everything and work 24 hours a day for years on end and and he kind of makes these calculations in his mind um and the it's a real problem it's spacex the the employees talk about having to fudge all these timelines to kind of please him and then they have to go over to the companies that are actually buying the satellite contracts and give them kind of the real timeline <laughs> for when things are going to happen and I would have thought that over time he would get better and more reserved with this stuff, but he actually seems to almost be going the opposite way. I, th I think he, I think he doesn't want to sort of let people down, and he's starting to sort of believe in 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 the Elon myth himself, and and so keeps setting this bar really high. I think it's crazy. So one of the folks he brought in uh, to help on the business side was Jeremy O'Connell that you talked about, who was really a public policy expert and was able to help with the loan guarantee from Department of Energy, that $465 million that they were able to pay back early. But what struck me about that was that it didn't seem that before then um, Elon had focused much on public policy and how policy can impact business. And I just wonder if you ever, ever had a conversation with him since I'm a policy person about policy or even politics. I, I get the impression that politics would be not something he would want to engage in, but I'm just curious if you ever had a conversation about that. And of course, he's been sucked into them through the loan guarantee program and his uh, use of subsidy programs generally. Right. It's a very we did talk about it, and it's a super complex issue for him. He's all three of the businesses that he's involved in obviously have huge um, all these incumbents, and and he, the government plays a huge role in all of them. I, you know, politically speaking, he initially I think tried to deal with Washington as little as possible and then over time had to start putting a few people in DC to handle some of these issues he still has far less than his competitors do and I've never quite understood that either because it seems like uh, somewhere he'd want to invest a little bit more um, you know he he's dined at the White House with President Obama probably more than just about anyone and, and the Republicans seem to have noticed that and and generally have a pretty big distaste, distaste for Elon in, in my experience. But when you go look at his campaign contributions, whether it's from him personally or the companies, he seems to try to scatter it among Republicans and Democrats pretty easily. I think he's ended up being among the people in Silicon Valley who, who just abhor dealing with Washington and treat Washington pretty badly on the whole. He's actually been more adept than um, many of the folks there. But, but again, um, He's he's benefiting these days, I think, from his rising star power. You don't want to be the guy in Washington in a lot of cases kind of being on the wrong side of history and fighting Elon on some of this. And he's also benefiting that his companies are finally doing well and, and he's got factories in California and New York and Texas and Nevada, so some very powerful states. He's employing tens of thousands of people. And so where he used to be the underdog, he's now able to command um, a lot more influence in Washington. And so I, I think that's finally starting to benefit him. You don't talk as much about Solar City in the book as you do SpaceX and Tesla. And Solar City, of course, is trying to dominate every part of the the solar value chain, uh, similar to um, 
you know, what Tesla and SpaceX are, are trying to do. I mean, I think they're a little bit more focused, but he tries to control a lot of the pieces of the value chain within those areas of the business, and, and solar is no different. It's just this, this obsession with trying to get everything perfect. Many were really surprised, including myself, actually, when SolarCity moved into solar manufacturing, but it made so much more sense after reading the book because of that obsession with getting everything right. Is Solar City run the same uh, obsessive way as Tesla and SpaceX, you think? To some degree. I mean, I you know, I spent less time on Solar City because I think it gets Elon's involvement in the company sometimes gets overblown. He he definitely helped come up with the founding idea and he's chairman, but he has no time to to kind of deal with Solar City on anything remotely like a day-to-day basis and and the Rive uh his cousins, the Rive brothers run the company and and I think they're all cut from a similar cloth. You could see it even in the book. I talk about them growing up. They lived near each other and they were doing all these kind of entrepreneurial businesses as, as kids. And the whole family is this like extraordinarily entrepreneurial sort of family. And um, I think, you know, the Rives, I think on their own, would be obsessive about all this stuff and want to control things end to end. But they do hold Elon up as something of a model. And, you know, I, th- I think. They seem very convinced that they can make more power-efficient panels than anyone else. But again, I hold that up with a bit of skepticism. I think it's sort of in that Elon time kind of category as to whether or not they really are that much more efficient. So when you – when I read biographies, um, you know, I'm I'm trying to look for sort of the special sauce or the the theory of change or the, you know, sort of – you know, the way in which people operate that you can sort of emulate, right? So, I mean, what are the takeaways, right? If somebody really wants to be like Elon or, you know, change the world or, you know, pursue a big idea, what is the sort of takeaway lesson that Elon's giving us? Right. Yeah, people ask me a lot, how do you be like Elon? But I think, I mean, there's some degree to which you would not want to be like Elon. First of all, he had a pretty miserable childhood that seems to have a pretty big impact on on how he's turned out and kind of the level of risk and and suffering he's able to to put up with he lives his life in a way that i think very few people would want to do i mean he honest to god is working 7 days a week it's had a horrible toll on his marriages and and i think takes a toll on his his kids as well and um I don't know that that many people would want to do that. My my biggest takeaway while I was doing the book was that I did I did come away really impressed with how he he has decided what's important to him in life and he set a couple of of sort of life objectives and throws his all into them. When I finished the book and I sat back, I kind of reevaluated my life and, and was like, look, you, we really are. It really brought home how finite our time is on this planet and how much you can get done if you put your mind to it. And so I tried to sort of prioritize the things that I'm into and decided to um, get some of the more frivolous things out of my life. And, and really, um, I don't know if like meditated is the right word, but I really sat down and thought for like a week about, okay, you know, what do I want to do in the, the near term and the long term? I think that's what he's very good at. I don't think I would ever live my life fully in the Elon way. But that that was my my big takeaway is, is that um, I think we're all more capable than we give ourselves credit for and, and that we can kind of strive to do more. Elon is often compared to Steve Jobs, 
but as you you pointed out that you know they go about things kind of differently elon likes to talk about his strategy very publicly and and set public goals whereas steve jobs often worked be, worked behind the scenes and then uh unveiled some big project that they had been working on and that's you know in apple's dna and and uh you know but but many do compare musk with a guy like Henry Ford or Steve Jobs, and he's using that vision that he has to build stuff that is potentially world-changing. And and that's a hole that is, um, you know, a gaping hole in Silicon Valley that many lament. Do you see him that way as someone who uh, is, is different from most of Silicon Valley and doing something meaningful, whether or not he succeeds or fails, that he's filling a necessary gap? I do, for sure. That's kind of why I wanted to do the book. I've covered the Valley for 15 years. I'd grown increasingly cynical with where things are heading. It's become a region consumed with entertainment services and consumer apps. The VCs are more and more reluctant to fund long-term difficult things. And I was getting really depressed. I mean, that's why, you know, when I walked into the SpaceX factory for the first time, I expected to see kind of a handful of people working on one rocket, and what I found was thousands of people mass-producing a rocket in the middle of Los Angeles at a time when we're told that it's impossible to manufacture things in the United States. He's, he's building stuff in the most expensive regions in the U.S., and um, again, a ton. He's, he's still got to prove a ton, but to me, this was a revelation and so refreshing to see someone who was trying to take some of the best practices of Silicon Valley, moving faster, advanced software, um, a flat structure in the companies and applying these to industries that, that were not at all wired to work this way. And it's been effective. And, and um, you know, I get, I used to cover semiconductors. And so I have a real soft spot for, for companies that manufacture things and that make really difficult things. And um, I wish... I get depressed that we have entire classes of computer science graduates from Stanford going to Google and Facebook to essentially um, get us to click on on more ads when a lot of these people in the past might have been physicists and chemists and and pushing material science and and energy and all kinds of things forward. And so, yeah, I mean, I kind of question where our best and brightest are going these days and think, if nothing else, at least Elon... um, provides a model of maybe a different path. The book is called Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the Quest for a Fantastic Future. It was written by Ashley Vance, our guest and a columnist and feature writer at Bloomberg Business Week. Superbly written profile. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That was fun. I appreciate it. I really love that interview because I, I certainly enjoyed the book a lot, but I think Ashley Vance, who's been a technology reporter and who's been living in Silicon Valley for a long time, has a compelling perspective on where a lot of the talent is going in Silicon Valley to companies that uh, are doing important things on the internet, but ultimately don't come anywhere close to the sort of world-changing technology that a guy like Elon Musk is pursuing. So I appreciated his attitude. And we also appreciate Mission Solar Energy because they're our sponsor. They're a big supporter of this show. And you know what? They support a lot of American workers because the booming solar industry now employs over 260,000 people in the U.S. And Mission Solar is a proud employer. 
The company's 260-megawatt solar manufacturing facility supports manufacturing jobs, engineering jobs, and, of course, office jobs in San Antonio, directly contributing to America's burgeoning clean energy economy. Mission Solar's Texas-based location makes it easier to fulfill the needs of domestic developers as well, keeping projects moving and on schedule. And Mission Solar's in-house research and development laboratory keeps the company innovating and producing the highest quality modules possible. Come meet the Mission Solar team at Solar Power International in Las Vegas from September 10th through the 13th. They're going to be at booth 3975. You've heard me say that a number of times before. Ingrain that in your head, 3975. And for those who are not at Solar Power International, check out Mission Solar's modules at missionsolar.com. So our next interview is going to be about the future of the grid. And before we get to that, I want to give a big shout out to one of our conferences, the New York Rev Future, which is happening in Brooklyn. That's right, in Brooklyn, New York, from September 26th through the 27th. We've been holding this thing for years now. It gets sold out every time. And uh, ever since New York embarked on this really ambitious energy market reform, we have been trying to figure it out every step of the way. And so we have all the heavy hitters there to discuss the nitty-gritty details of what the heck is going on in New York because it can get complicated. And we've got um, a really talented staff of analysts and obviously the folks from the governor's office and agencies around New York and regulators who can help you understand this stuff. So if you're an Energy Gang listener or an Interchange listener, you can get 15% off the Rev Future Conference. Again, it's in Brooklyn, New York, September 26th and the 27th. When you check out, just use the promo code ENERGYGANG. It's all one word, ENERGYGANG. For 15% off. And that's going to cap off a pretty busy fall season. Uh, For now, we're going back to the dog days of summer. In fact, the summer of 2016 for our next interview from The Interchange. Fan fiction, it's really popular these days and rather obsess over coming up with his own storylines for Fifty Shades of Grey or Harry Potter. Shale went full-on geek. He wrote a piece for GTM called How the Grid Was Won. And it imagined him in the future laying out these three different scenarios for how the distributed grid was realized. It's a great piece. Go read it. It uh, was also an interview that's getting more relevant as time goes on. So here it is. Yeah, so I guess for me, the point of writing this piece was mostly as a kind of a thought experiment for myself because I spend all this time embroiled in the weeds of what's going on day to day in the electricity sector and looking at like individual, you know, battles over net metering or individual technologies that are influencing the grid or the cost structure of storage or whatever it is. And and I feel like I I get too caught up in it. Um, And so I wanted to spend a little bit of time thinking about like, to what end all of this is happening and where, where we might be headed over the next, you know, I said, 15 years, which technically would be 2031, but 2030 made for a better headline. So over the next 15 years or so. Um, and But I guess when I started thinking about it in that context, the year 2030, what are things going to look like? I saw a few different possibilities, but it was hard for me to imagine a scenario that I really believe in as a, as a real possibility that doesn't have some kind of fundamental transformation in it. Like I, I am, I've discovered 
a real believer that the growth of distributed energy resources combined with the growth of renewable energy, which is intermittent, combined with smart grid technology, which makes the system a little bit more visible and uh, efficient, that, that those things together will result in a big enough transformation that we'll look back on it as at least as important for electricity as deregulation was a couple decades ago uh, and potentially a lot more important. So none of the scenarios that I outlined were like, eh, this stuff doesn't really matter. Like we'll, we'll look back on it and be like, oh yeah, there was a moment when we talked about this a lot, but you know, it just sort of passed. So I don't think that's the future. I agree with your premise. And I suppose that's a good thing because that's the premise of green tech media as a company that right, we're going to yeah. see this transformation. Yeah. If I did say that, right. If I was like, oh, one of the most likely scenarios is that none of this stuff really matters. Uh, I'm in the wrong job. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. The three <laughs> scenarios. Uh, the first one is the aimless transformation. And this essentially is an extension of what we see today where a lot of the, the, the trends unfold without a real plan to manage the changing economics of distributed energy. And, uh, you know, we don't see great strides in rate reform. We, um, see incredible improvements in the economics of distributed energy, but we just don't have a great plan in place to manage it. So, so what happens under this scenario in your mind? Right. So this is my version of, you know, I think there was a lot of talk two, three years ago about a utility death spiral. And I think at this point, very few people really think that a death spiral is coming. Well, let me, so let me uh, original, pull back the curtain. And yeah, you were going to say the original concept was yeah, the, what was it, the I was, chain spiral? Or? No, it was the, it was the pain spiral. The pain I was, spiral. or like the ache spiral. Oh, I was yes, trying to come up with a spiral. term. Yeah, right. So you, as as a good editor, uh, pointed out to me that that's a, just a terrible name for the scenario. So we replaced it with aimless transformation. But, you know, the idea behind it initially was, okay, let's extend forward more or less what's happening now, which is that you see pretty rapid growth of solar in particular, both distributed solar that is net metered and utility scale solar that increasingly now is being uh, procured directly by large consumers by who are bypassing their utilities to some extent, at least as retail energy providers. So you have utilities basically losing load from two ends, um, rapidly from customers who are installing their own generation. And then this is a more nascent trend, but from some of their largest customers who want to procure directly from renewable energy facilities. And so it says, okay, let's let's build that forward, but also assume that the regulatory response is not particularly well thought out. So maybe you continue to extend net metering for a while. Um, you don't really deal with the underlying issue. You don't uh, facilitate ways for customers to procure their own energy with more choice all that well. Utilities similarly don't do that. So in some ways you could look at this as like, you kind of, this is a lot of the the solar companies, I guess, especially the ones that are fighting the net metering battles, kind of getting what they want for a time. And so then you extend that forward and you say, what is the outcome of that? And, you know, basically the way I see that playing out is you do end up with a lot more solar on the grid, but it doesn't necessarily get you where you ultimately want to be for a couple of reasons. One, um, you end up losing some innovation in the distribution grid. So if utilities are sort of in this ache spiral or whatever you want to call it, where they're not, they're not about to go out of business, but you know, the utility business is sort of increasingly and consistently under threat. 
Um, it's not an attractive place to invest. It's not an attractive place to work. Um, as a result, you know, you have these sort of utilities that turn into not quite zombies, but, you know, pl- not places of innovation, basically. Um, and I think that's a, a loss because I think you want innovation on the distribution grid. You want utilities to have purchasing power. You want to feel like there is growth in that industry because there are lots of ways in which the increasing penetration of solar and renewables and distributed energy resources could be better if they are managed, communicated with, you know, optimized by things on the utility side of the meter. So you you miss out on that to some extent. And then the second thing that you get sort of further into the future as solar does start to become a, a meaningful share of electricity generation on the grid is you do start to get this value deflation effect that we've talked about before on this show, which basically says that like the more solar you put on the grid, once you hit higher penetrations, the less valuable the next kilowatt hour is. And if you don't have some sort of regulatory response to that, then the cost shifting issue, which is what you know, is often debated in net metering battles today. And I think honestly is not a big issue today would become a big issue at some point in the future, which would mean you'd end up having more cross subsidization than you want. So this is basically the scenario one is basically like a cautionary tale for the solar advocates saying, you know, if you get what you want now, you may come to regret it a little bit in the future. That's what I took away from this scenario. And and I think it's an important lesson because the solar industry, if it just focuses on steamrolling steamrolling over utilities in the regulatory and policy sphere, then they're not going to necessarily get what they want long term. And this has to be more of a managed transition because it will be good for a healthy utility is good for the solar industry. Not necessarily, but I think long term when you look at the uh, potential scenarios it's important to get all of this stuff right at once and simply focusing on short-term battles without much consideration of the future could result in, in this uh, dire scenario. I, I don't know if you necessarily call it dire. You just It's not a very well-managed transition and ultimately not great for the solar industry. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like this isn't, the, this isn't apocalyptic by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, you know, of the first two scenarios, I'd probably rather have version one than version two, which we're about to talk about. But uh, even given that, it's certainly not optimal, and it it creates risks that um, that you probably aren't thinking about if all you're worried about is like what's going to happen in the next in the next quarter or the next year. I mean, to be to be fair, you know, I think these are highly stylized portraits of the future, and obviously, when you're down in it and you're in front of a public utilities commission, you're trying to figure out the future of of you know rates in a particular state at a particular time. Obviously, you have to like. Think about things in the context of what the what that particular state is dealing with and the best way to address it. But I think broadly speaking, you know, you don't want a scenario. I, I don't think that the solar industry wants a scenario that is just a an extension of current trends for fifteen more years. I think that that results in a bigger backlash further into the future um, than you would get if you think a little bit more about it in the meantime. Okay, so the backlash is what guides scenario two, the balkanized grid. And this is where the utilities mostly get what they want, not the solar industry. And it comes back it comes back to bite them eventually. Walk me through this one. Yeah. So this one basically says, I mean, there's an you can there there's one version of this scenario that's like super easy to explain, which is basically imagine what happened in Nevada happens in like two more states next year. I don't actually think it needs to be a lot of states. I think a couple more states over the next 
12 months, introduce drastic reforms to net energy metering, and they do so retroactively in the same way that Nevada did. Nevada doesn't overturn the retroactive nature of its changes. Um, that, I think, has a ripple effect through the rest of the solar residential solar market in particular in the U.S. results in that market being severely threatened, um, probably shrinking pretty quickly from a market that was growing very fast. Uh, and, you know, you can imagine, especially because the timing of it works out such that you introduce these drastic reforms before the cost of batteries comes down a whole lot. Um, so you don't really get to have an economic system that is solar plus storage for most customers yet. And you the market basically goes dormant for a few years. I don't think that's crazy. I mean, you can see that already in Nevada, it's easy to look at the changes that occurred in Nevada and say, uh, you could just add storage and and maybe you still have an economic system. You just don't see that happening yet because the costs aren't there. So this scenario basically says uh, residential solar looks for a time like a house of cards um, because you discover that some real risk of regulatory change that happens in enough states that it doesn't seem like an outlier um, can kill the market. And so over the short term, you know, it looks like this whole thing just passed, but um, that doesn't last forever. This is sort of where my view on what would happen, right? So this is a global market to some extent. And so the U.S. goes dormant, but the U.S. is not the only place where this trend is at play. Um, there are lots of other places, most notably today, Germany, Japan, Australia, and you can imagine some others, particularly like remote island grids in, in Southeast Asia and places like that, where you will continue to see growth in distributed generation and increasingly in energy storage as well. And so basically what happens for a few years is it just it's happening outside the US. But as a result, the cost structure of all these things, the hardware costs in particular, and to some extent, the soft costs that you can, you know, draw across the pond, uh, continue to decline. And then so what I think ends up happening is, you know, the underlying reasons why customers today are installing this stuff and are interested in this stuff, which is some combination of, um, you know, green sentiment with economic desire to lower your energy bill combined with sort of dissatisfaction with the utility in a lot of cases, and a few other things, those underlying factors remain in place. And as a result, um, the costs come down to a point globally where the market starts to pick up again, you know, sometime next decade in the US. But what's different at that point is that because of the way that rates have changed and because of the fact that it's now been proven that retroactive changes are entirely possible, the most efficient way to install this stuff is basically by going off grid, um, by actually defecting from the grid, which is something people don't really think is going to happen right now. And I don't think it's going to happen right now either, but I could imagine it in a decade if the economics are sufficient. And um, if the concern is that if you don't do it by defecting that, you know, the rug could be pulled out from under you. So this is like, this is why it's a balkanized grid. You end up with a, a true um, grid defection issue sometime later next decade, which is a, a much bigger problem than what you see today. And I should just note, I've been talking a lot about residential, you know, you could also see this happening with the large customers. We have examples today of uh, customers who are trying to sort of semi-defect from their utility, but not from the grid by procuring power directly from a particular renewable energy project. This would just be a further extension of that where some large customers might actually defect and install microgrids uh, at some point in the future. So that that's a that's much more problematic for the grid, for other customers, and certainly for utilities. 
I had a harder time imagining this one simply because I think I, I have a problem with grid defection and, and I, it assumes a lot about customer behavior on the residential side. It's pretty clear on the CNI side that corporate customer defection could be a real problem under this scenario, right? So I could imagine in a decade there being a ton of microgrids a ton of customers that have just disconnected from their utility to go procure power on their own and they're just paying for access to the poles and wires but on the residential side you know it's still it's so hard to predict consumer behavior that it's diff more difficult for me to imagine this scenario here here's what i can imagine though i i totally agree i mean it's i have a hard time picturing like your average homeowner in you know santa rosa california going off grid on their own but, and one of the things that I, I kind of alluded to a little bit in the piece, what I could theoretically imagine is, you know, you do have some places even now where you have kind of communities coming together to try to control their electricity. This is community choice aggregation. Well, you, well, that's one example of it. Yeah. So community choice aggregation is a big thing in California right now. And it's not grid defection today, but could you imagine that sort of morphing into communities deciding to defect at some point in the future if they could do so with, you know, pretty good reliability and lower costs? Yeah, I could see it. I mean, look at Boulder's effort to municipalize. Look at Germany, right? I mean, there are record numbers of cities looking to procure power on their own and disconnect from the big utilities in that country. I could see the same trend in the United States. And what makes this more likely is that even if you have hundreds of millions of dollars in fees to disconnect from the utility, at some point distributed generation costs are going to be low enough so that a city or a town could say, this makes sense for us you know, to procure our own power. I mean, if they have sustainability goals, renewable energy targets, and the costs are low enough, you have a few very, very crucial drivers there that could accelerate the trend. Right. I mean, your equation there is is pretty simple. It's basically like when you're when you're connected to the grid, you're paying for all of this legacy equipment, right? And that that those costs continue to go up as time goes on. If you want to just install a bunch of new stuff, um, distributed generation and storage and load control, you know, that has to be cheaper than the old stuff. And in some cases, it already is. Um, but you know, you're going to have to pay an exit fee, which I think is right because you sort of were signed on to pay for all this legacy equipment. So you should have an exit fee that sort of covers your contribution to that cost. So if the difference between the cost of the new stuff and the cost of uh, the old stuff is bigger than whatever exit fee you're going to have to pay, then it still makes economic sense for you to do it. I think that's what like Switch Data Center and MGM are finding in, in Nevada right now and why they're sort of trying to get off of Envy power and envy energy. Um, so, you know, community choice aggregation, I think is, you know, you could imagine that morphing in the future. You could also imagine, you know, there's some places where there are like local microgrids today that are not disconnected from the grid. They're islandable um, for resiliency purposes and things like that. But again, I could imagine we're thinking, you know, a decade into the future here. In a decade, I could imagine that morphing also into some cases where it just makes more sense to have it be off the grid entirely and not connect in the first place. I don't think this is an optimal outcome at all. In fact, I think this is the worst of the three scenarios, but it's not crazy to me that you could imagine it happening. One of the biggest concerns with that is that I think where you would see that happen first, the early adopters of grid defection would tend to be wealthier. 
So where you have this sort of equity concern already about residential solar and who's installing it, I, I think this would be even a bigger deal um, because the places where there's community choice aggregation, the places where there's microgrids, they just tend to have a little bit more money. To summarize these first two scenarios, if the solar industry gets everything it wants in the short term, that could ultimately be bad for the solar industry long term. And vice versa. If the utility fights this and gets everything they want in the short term, then the balkanized grid eventually is very terrible for them and you start to see customer defection, which I think is a very realistic scenario on the commercial industrial side. So uh, that brings us to the third one, which is embracing the transformation. But is there anything else you want to say on that that front? That it, And that is, there's got to be some level of compromise. And if both sides get what they want, then that could ultimately come back to bite them. Yeah, I guess the only thing I would say there is I don't want to paint either the solar industry or utilities with too broad a brush here and say that this is what they think that they want entirely. I, I think that, you know, at least a lot of people that I talk to on both sides of this equation agree that the third scenario or some version of it is where they'd like to be heading. And they realize that even today. So this isn't exactly saying like you guys don't know what you're doing. I do think what I'm trying to do is sort of draw forward a a kind of extreme but but realistic scenario given trends that are happening right now on either side so it's you know it's not exactly getting what they want it's like getting what they didn't think they wanted but might end up with if they're not careful mm -hmm. so that brings us to the third one which is embracing the transformation that is uh, we see more states start to do what california new york and hawaii are doing and that is taking a more comprehensive pro approach uh, to rate design and to technology adoption, to helping utilities adapt. Under this scenario, what kind of progressive uh, regulation and policymaking do we see? So what I wanted to do here, I think, is get a little bit away from, I think there's a tendency right now, particularly among people in sort of our class of like thinkers around what's going on right now, to say, you know, that the ideal situation is that like every state adopts what New York is doing right now, you know, that Rev is the model that will be replicated everywhere else. And I think what's been proven over and over again in electricity in the US is that there's no one size fits all solution for different states. And so I, I'm not I'm trying not to say that Rev exactly or what California is doing or even Hawaii, like that any of those are exactly the model that other states will take on. What I was trying to say is um, that, you know, sort of collectively, um, the electricity industry tries to take from some of these early adopter states lessons that can be applied more broadly, that then can be used to determine solutions for individual states and individual utilities that are going to be tailored. So I started by trying to say, okay, well, maybe what will happen is um, across those three states that we mentioned and a few other states where there's some interesting, interesting things going on, um, there will be some agreement on kind of first principles that everybody can get on board with. And so, you know, I put together a list of them. They're, they're going to be different ones from what I said, but they include things like, let's agree that distributed energy resources should be valued according to, or compensated according to their true value. Um, and that true value should also incorporate avoided costs on the distribution grid and, and transmission as well, and societal externalities. Um, I think that's something that everybody basically can agree on. Obviously, the devil's in the details in terms of what how to calculate those costs. But let's start there. Um, I think everybody should agree that retroactive changes 
to significant retroactive changes should be avoided. Um, we should protect the investments of existing customers. Um, they could agree that, you know, utilities are and should remain a central and important component of the electricity system and that utilities should be solvent and profitable. That is our ideal situation. We don't want to put the utilities out of business. That's not good for anybody. Um, there's a, there has to be a realization that, you know, the way that we've designed electricity rates has has made sense historically, but in a world of proliferation of resources at the customer site, uh, those rates need to become more dynamic. They probably need to become location-based. Um, and so we need to be thinking about ways to do that. And then finally, you know, recognizing what the potential outcome is of doing location and value-based rates, um, you want to make sure that everybody agrees ahead of time that there's going to be a need to cross-subsidize intentionally, particularly like rural customers, low-income customers, and things like that. And let's all agree that we are comfortable doing that um, to make sure that, that we retain the sort of equity that the electricity system was built off of. So this scenario basically says we start with this general agreement on a set of principles, and then those kind of proliferate throughout the rest of the country in different ways in different places. And I think what will be interesting about that is that, you know, the utility business model will evolve everywhere, but it will evolve differently in a bunch of different places. And so, you know, I laid out a bunch of different examples of sort of new utility businesses that um, you see glimmers of today, but that could become a bigger deal in the future. This scenario is essentially what Ryan Hanley from Solar City and Sue Tierney of the Analysis Group came on our show to talk about in various ways. Well, that's a piece of it, right? So both Ryan, when he was on, was talking about, um, you know, letting utilities, yeah, exactly. Letting utilities earn a profit off of procured services as opposed to capital investment. So I think that that's important. I think that should be a component of it. When Sue, Sue Tierney was on, she was talking about the value of uh, distributed energy resources to the distribution grid. That's a mechanism to help calculate that value. So uh, to basically make the decision about whether we should be procuring DERs for something or making a capital investment. So both of those are components of it. But I think there's a bunch of other examples of things that are interesting out there now that relate less to the sort of how do you compensate distributed energy resources and more to what what's the utilities business in this new world. Um, so things like utilities acting as customer acquisition engines, you know, we, there are good and bad examples of that today. Utilities now, one thing that I think we're starting to see a lot of is um, on the large customer side, utilities actually acting as the sort of structuring agent to tailor these green tariff programs for large customers. So rather than MGM bypassing NV Energy to procure solar and wind, what if NV Energy had sort of worked with uh, MGM to figure out exactly what the right tariff is for them and, you know, take a cut, obviously, as the structuring agent. Um, that would have been a way for NV Energy to to stay involved, but get MGM what it wanted. So there's lots of different cases of things like that, that I think are also a key component to this. It's not just changing the way that, that rates uh, are structured, and it's not just changing the way that utilities make money in terms of distribution grid services, I think it's also like, what is the utility fundamentally? Yeah, I think reform will spread kind of like marijuana legislation or gay marriage, you know, it happens over time as more states or regulatory bodies or utilities phase in these policies, get comfortable with the idea. And then it just happens over time until it becomes 
a national trend. I think that there's there's a, a proxy there. You know, it's and, interesting. Those are two interesting examples, though, right? Where so gay marriage, you know, it was state by state by state by state by state until eventually it was national. Like there was there was a national ruling that you know covered the rest of the states with a blanket. Whereas marijuana, I mean, that could still happen, but at this point, it's it's just state by state by state. And with with electricity, because you know the federal authority is pretty limited, FERC's authority um, is relatively limited. I, I I can't imagine ever there being just like a blanket national transformation. But you have seen some. Uh, bills that never made it anywhere in Congress, like Angus King had one uh, senator from Maine last year that uh, would have sort of accelerated the whole trend, you know, forced a particular sort of form of compensation for distributed energy resources or forced every state to do a valuation study or something like that. So you can maybe get somewhere in between. Again, that was an excerpt from the Interchange podcast way back in our archives before it became a public show. And now you can uh, access all of our new shows. So hope you subscribe to The Interchange. And uh, also, of course, keep tuned to The Energy Gang. Both of those shows cover the news and analysis of this industry in different ways. So they're nice compliments to each other. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Enjoy your last few weeks of summer. We're going to be back with regularly scheduled programming next week. And we're going to have some live shows coming up, too. We'll have more details on those soon. In the meantime, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we'll catch you next week. 